0: Now, maybe from your childhood, or, or if it was just in reruns, you remember the, the, the television game show, What's My Line? You had a, a panelist of celebrities who asked yes or no questions, sort of playing a, a version of 20 questions to guess the line of work, What's My Line of Work, What's My Vocation, of a contestant. Now, what made the show enjoyable, what made the show watchable, was, was not merely that they sometimes had surprising occupations, like professional billiards player, but that you, as the audience, were already in on the solution. Because when the person walked out onto the stage, was presented to the the live studio and presented to the audience at home, what the person's job was, it came up on the screen. And so you get to hear the questions asked, and the ones that are just totally absurd cause a chuckle for you, or as they're getting close, you're realizing you're, you're almost there, you've almost figured it out. Well, that's really where we are as we jump into John's gospel. We're we're at the point where the question is being forced upon the crowds, upon the people who have heard about Jesus, those that have seen his miracles. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? But as you and I jump into the story, we, we, like the, the audience watching the game show, already have had the answer flashed on the screen in front of us. And, and, and you can go home later today and, and read through these opening chapters of John's gospel, but, but, but if, you, if you read in them, then what we've already been told, what is Jesus's line? What's his vocation? What's his line of work? Why did he come? We've, we've, already, we've already seen it flash on the screen. Jesus is the Word of God. He is the one who created everything. He is God dwelling among us. He is the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the king of Israel, the Christ, the savior of the world, the holy one of the Lord. And that's just the first six chapters of John's gospel. You and I are already told who he is. And so now as we step in to hear the confrontation, to hear people challenge his identity, to wonder who he is, why he has come, you and I, I, like the audience, can feel the anxiety of, oh, you're so close, you're almost there, you've almost got the right answer. But we're not just a studio audience. We're those meant to answer that question for ourselves. Who is this Christ? Now, what's my line? Came on television in the 1950s. The grand prize was $50. $50. There's a lot more on the line today. This is life and death, your eternal destiny. Who is Is Jesus? What's his line of work? What's his purpose? Why is he here? And so listen as I read. We'll we'll get through the first 24 verses of this chapter today, but I'm going to start just by reading the first nine. John chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. After this, okay, you need to know what just came in chapters 5 and 6. Jesus healed a man. There was controversy because he did it on the Sabbath. Jesus fed the thousands. And yet, despite these great miracles, people have already abandoned Jesus. Look back at verse 66 of chapter 6. And maybe that's a should have been an omen as they were writing down the verse numbers. If you are a verse that's 666, it's going to be a bad one. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. That's where we are in the gospel. Jesus is already being abandoned. Back to chapter 7. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee purposely staying away from Judea because of the because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish feast of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, The right time for me has not yet come for you. Any time is right. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast. Because for me, the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. So the confrontation is already clear. Disciples are abandoning Jesus, and now his brothers— and here, we're not, we're not using brothers in the way that, that it would be used later in the New Testament to describe those that are spiritually part of your family, the people sitting next to you in church, You are brothers and sisters in, the, in Christ, in the faith. No, this is a much more simple use of that term. These are the sons of Mary and Joseph, those brothers that grew up in Jesus' house, the younger siblings of Jesus. And we don't know where they fall. It's clear by verse 5 that, that they don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe the messages. They've seen the miracles. They, they know the, the testimony. But, but you see that clear in the way they speak of your disciples. And so it's unclear what, the, what is the challenge here. Is it, a, is it a mocking challenge of, well, Jesus, it's one thing to become the biggest act in Galilee, to be the greatest thing going up here. But, but Jesus, we live in the backwaters of the Roman Empire. If you want to be the Messiah, if you want to be the King of the Jews, if you're going to lay title to those claims, then you've got to go to the big city. Get your name up on the marquee in Jerusalem. Jesus, the King of the Jews. That's who you want to be. So go prove it. Prove to us who you are. I mean, there is a sense in which their, 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 their lack of faith is obvious in their words. But, but maybe... Maybe it's an open invitation. Maybe there's a a genuine desire for them to understand. Because at this point in Jesus' life and ministry, his brothers don't believe. But thankfully, if you continue to read through the New Testament, you will find his brothers come to faith. But here, it's a confrontation even already with his own Brothers. And so Jesus' answer to them of the, the request that he go and make public his ministry, that he go down to Judea, to Jerusalem, the capital city. Look at verse 6. The right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. He's saying, you are, you are living by worldly standards. Your desires are selfish desires. So, so to go according to your plan, well, we could just go any time. Now is as good a time as any. This is one of the great feasts of the people of Israel. We're told in verse 2, it's the Feast of the Tabernacles. One of the three great feasts in the year in which the Jews were required to, to go as pilgrims to Jerusalem. There they would set up booths, tents, little shelters, the tabernacles. Reminders that they were, were those that wandered in the wilderness. For 40 years after God had rescued them, they were wanderers. And here are this festival that that celebrated both the harvest but also a reminder of God's faithfulness would be a time in which the city would would be overflowing with religious pilgrims and so so now now according to a to an earthly calendar would be the right time but Jesus says but I'm I'm not working on your calendar I'm here to do the will of the father we'll see And he says says to them, it's it's clear then that this confrontation is is big between Jesus and his brothers. He says, the world cannot hate you because you are part of the world. Your way of thinking, if if you are one who is in unbelief, then then you are just part of the world. You're living according to the patterns of this world. And Jesus says, but the world, it hates me. Look look at verse 7. Why? Why is Jesus hated? Because I testify that what the world does is evil all right as we wrestle with that big question who is jesus this isn't the the sort of happy-go-lucky skipping down the roads of galilee kind of jesus that comes alongside with with all smiles and sweetness a jesus see see you and i might might want this to be the the jesus of our imaginations a jesus who is always gentle but but here we have a confrontational jesus In confrontation, and you'll see it in in these chapters here at the Feast of Tabernacles, that the tension just keeps getting ratcheted higher and higher as Jesus' identity becomes more and more clear. Because Jesus is here to bring judgment to the world. He is condemning the world for its sinfulness. Jesus is hated because of the high standards he demands. He is calling us sinners. He is calling us evil. So he tells his brothers, you go to the feast. I'm not yet going. The time is not right. But now let's look at verse 10, because while Jesus in verse 9 stays in Galilee, in verse 10, everything changes. So let's continue reading. This is John chapter 7, verse 10. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the feast, the Jews were watching him and asking Where is that man? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having studied? So Jesus, having told his brothers he wouldn't go in verse— and then stays behind in verse 9. Now in verse 10, just goes. I mean, what's what's going on? I mean, did Jesus just point-blank lie to his brothers? No. It was not time for him to go up publicly with them, to be announced as the king of the Jews. It was not time for a triumphal entry. And so it's possible that Jesus knew— Well, here's what's going to take place. As soon as you guys get far enough down the road, over the horizon, I'm coming behind you, but I'm doing it secretly. But it's also possible that at this point, because Jesus is not following his own plan, his own agenda, he has submitted himself to the will of the Father, that Jesus does not yet know it is time to go. While his brothers are here, it is not time to go. I mean, maybe you've had that experience when you show up at an event or a party or something and and somebody that had told you they weren't going to be there is there. And you say, well, wait, what happened? I I thought you couldn't make it. Oh, well, after we talked, I, you know, my, my boss came in and I, we, I didn't have to finish that project. He got pushed on Monday, so, so I was free, so I, it showed up. My plans changed. Well, that may merely be what's taking place here. There is no deceit in Jesus. In verse 9, it is the right thing for him to stay. Now that his brothers are gone, the, the, the premature public announcement of Jesus has dissipated. Now it is time for Jesus to go. But even before he arrives... The crowds are wondering, they're whispering. Surely he'll be here. I mean, if you are the Jewish Messiah, if that's what you claim, then surely he'll arrive here at the Jewish feast, the festival. If he, is, if he is meaning to call people to follow after him, then these are the people you want to call, the religious people of the day, those that are serious enough about their faith to make a pilgrimage, to bring a sacrifice, to be here for this great feast. And so the crowds are asking, Where is he? But we see in verse 12 that they're whispering about him. Some say he's a good man. Others know he deceives the people. And perhaps that's the same kind of way you might be tempted to think about Jesus. That you might, like some in the crowd, say, well, he's a good man. And and in one sense, that's clearly the right answer. Jesus is kind and gentle and generous. Jesus has commands for us about turning the other cheek, about forgiving our our those that have sinned against us. And so, yes, in one sense, he's clearly a good man. And maybe that's what you think of Jesus as you've walked in here today. Jesus is nice. There's some things that I like about him, and I'm glad if it works for you, this whole Jesus thing. But... But he's just a nice guy. But, but others immediately realize the, the tension. He, but, but you can't call him merely a good man if he has claimed all of those other titles that he has claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God. You can't be merely a good man and claim to be the Messiah. What, what is he? He's a deceiver. Now, you've pr- perhaps heard C.S. Lewis's explanation of, of this tension in the crowd's responses to Jesus. On the one hand, Jesus can be who he claimed to be. C.S. Lewis was that, that mid-20th century apologist and, and author of fiction, a, a professor in England. And you know him from his, his Narnia books. But, but, he, but, he, but he raised this question. He said, well, Jesus is He's either who he claimed to be, he is the Lord, or he's, he knows he's not, he's a liar. Well, that's what the people are saying here. He is a deceiver, or he is a lunatic. He thinks he really is the Son of God, the Messiah, but it's, it's not true. And Lewis would say he might as well be claiming to be a poached egg. It's nonsense. But, but you see, in that category, the, that, that idea that he's merely a good man, it can't be left. You can't be merely a good man and yet have claimed to be the Son of God. You have to deal with the truthfulness of this claim. Is he really the Son of God? Is he God in the flesh? Is he the Messiah, the King of Israel? Now, you and I might think, well, actually, I, I think C.S. Lewis wasn't quite comprehensive enough. The, that, that trilemma of liar, lunatic, or lord, well, but see, we, w- w- maybe we're smarter than that. Maybe there should be a fourth category we'd add that, that, it, that it's just a legend. Liar, lunatic, lord, or legend. It's just made up. Jesus never claimed any of this. This is just fiction. This is a a, a good story that was made up by the disciples after the fact. I actually don't think it's that C.S. Lewis overlooked that. C.S. Lewis, as a, as a scholar of the, the medieval world, one who understood the way the ancient world worked, would have looked at that and said, no, that's nonsense. That's not how legends are formed. If it were a legend, it, it, it comes much too soon. In the lifetime of the disciples, they're willing to give their lives for this claim. No, Jesus really has made the claim, and so, so you can't, like the crowds, just whisper that he's a good man. Maybe you would agree with them that he's a deceiver, or as we jump down, you'll see in verse 20, others throw in that category, no, he's a lunatic. He might as well be demon-possessed. And whether or not they they believe he was physically possessed by a demon, that's an expression they could just say, he's out of his mind, he's crazy, he's a lunatic. But, But you can't leave him in that category of merely a good man. But then Jesus reveals himself. We're now halfway through this feast, a feast which lasted an entire week plus an extra Sabbath. So it's a seven-day feast plus an eighth day, Sabbath to Sabbath. And sometime in the middle of that week, he doesn't go up there with his brothers to be there at the start, but sometime in the middle, halfway through this, this festival, Jesus goes up to teach publicly in the temple courts. And the response then of the Jews, of those listening, is, is amazement. They ask the question, look at verse 15. How did this man get such learning without having studied? Isn't he that laborer from Galilee? That man who worked with his hands? He's not been to the great rabbinical schools. He doesn't have any kind of pedigree or diploma to show how great he is. How did he get such learning? It's it's the response that people have to Jesus' teaching throughout the Gospels. Uh, Amazement that he would come speaking with such authority. And so Jesus teaches them. He confronts them. He challenges their ideas about him as they ask this question. Who is he? Let's look at verse 16. We're in John chapter 7, verse 16. Jesus answered that question, how did he get such learning? By saying, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth, for there is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Do you see the argument Jesus is making in these verses? He's saying, I come with the authority of God in heaven, the one who sent me, the reason you think that I'm either crazy or I'm uh, deceitful, I'm, I'm either a lunatic or a liar, the reason you won't accept that I am Lord is because, look at verse 17, you will not do God's will. If you would obey God, submit yourself to God, you would then hear the truth that is being proclaimed to you. He's challenging the evil that is in their hearts. Now, these are the people who get up early on a rainy morning and get themselves into worship. They have dragged themselves all the way up to Jerusalem. They have brought their sacrifices. They are there for the festival. And he still challenges them. You disobey God. You are evil. You will not hear the word of God. He says, if I were here trying to speak on my own authority, if I were here teaching like one of your scribes, like one of the Pharisees, like one of your religious leaders, then what would I do? I would remind you I sat at the feet of this great rabbi. And remember, he was taught by this rabbi. And, and think back to the great debates that have gone on in, in the history of our religion. This man versus this. And I side with this argument. That's what Jesus would have done if he were coming based on his own pedigree, revealing his own diploma. He would have had to say, look at how great I am. Because in the end, the truthfulness of what he's saying would depend on whether or not people believed it. He would have, he would have had to justify himself to them. That's what he's, that's his argument in verse 18. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. It's the argument his brothers were making at the beginning of the chapter. If you want people to follow you, if you want to be publicly recognized, get out there and make yourself known. But Jesus says, I'm not here to gain your approval. No, he who works for the honor of the one who sent him, is a man of truth. Jesus comes with truth from God, whether or not people will accept it. So you don't sit in judgment over Jesus today. Your question, even as we've raised that, that, that dilemma for you, of who is he? No, he comes with the truth. You have to choose to rebel against that or submit to it. Your response doesn't change its truthfulness. Jesus is claiming to be the representative of God who speaks truth, who comes without falsehood. He's saying to them, you want to talk about the law, the commands that come from God. That's verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Okay, now, did that feel like it just comes out of left field? Jesus, what are you talking about? which is actually the response the people give in verse 20. You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? Look around, Jesus. I don't see any knives. I don't see any swords. I don't see any threat to your life. What are you talking about? But we were, we were told back in, in verse 1 of our chapter that the Jews were waiting to take his life. I mean, Jesus is not making this up. Jesus is saying, I'm not willing to talk about, about the mere surface kinds of questions. I'm going to get down to the root of it. On whose authority do I come? And what will your response be? In your heart, you want this over with. You want me dead. And it was clear that they were, they were out to kill him. Actually, flip back with me to chapter 5. Jesus, in chapter 5, healed a man in Jerusalem, but it was on the Sabbath day, the day set apart as holy to the Lord for worship of the Lord. You weren't supposed to work, and so the people say, Jesus, healing equals work, therefore you broke the law of God. And chapter 5 will actually be the context for the continuing argument of Jesus in in chapter 7. But the people in chapter 5 realize what Jesus is doing, when he declares himself to have authority over the Sabbath, to, have, to be the one who can give the law of God, he's claiming something pretty significant. And so look at verse 18 of John chapter 5, where Jesus claims to be doing the work of the Father in heaven. And in John 5, 18, we read this response. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking in the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Here we're getting to it. This is really the issue, right? He can't be merely a good man and make the claim to be God himself. But that's what Jesus has done. That's what the confrontation in chapter 7 and 8 is about. Who is Jesus who comes? And so he throws the question at them. He's going to, he's ratcheting up the argument. He's not merely going to dance around the issue. He's going to get right to the heart of it. Why are you trying to kill me? Essentially, he's asking you today, why will you not submit yourself to my authority? I am the son of God standing in your midst. I have authority over the law of God. I come speaking the very words of God. You claim to obey God's law. That's what he says to the religious leaders. You say, you say, Jesus, you broke number four. Keep the Sabbath. You broke it. Therefore, you don't have to be listened to anymore. You've already broken the law. But he says, well, you want to talk about law? You're ready to, you're ready to kill me. I'm pretty sure that is one of the laws as well. And, and the irony of this chapter is those who claim to, to have the law on their side, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, are actually those that now stand condemned by that very law. But that's the very purpose for which God's law was given to us. God's moral commands. Those ten commandments are held up in front of us like a mirror so that we see our own sinfulness and brokenness. And yet the people are using that to exalt themselves. Why are you trying to kill me? But you're a lunatic. Look at verse 20. Jesus, you're demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? And so let's Finish this section by reading again at verse 21. Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you're all astonished. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now, if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. All right, now we're back in chapter 5, that argument from the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem. He healed the man. The problem is, Jesus, did you check the calendar? It's the Sabbath. You can't heal on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus shows them the foolishness of their argument. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. They are misunderstanding its purpose. But even the law of the people allowed a boy to be circumcised on the Sabbath. If He was was meant to be, and and maybe this isn't as familiar to us if if you didn't grow up in a Jewish home, but on the eighth day, the child is to be circumcised. So if a child is born on the Sabbath, because that work, moms, has to take place when the baby arrives. You don't get to pick the date. If the baby is born on the Sabbath, and you count that as day one, then you count to the eighth day. It is the next Sabbath day. Therefore... You circumcise the child on the Sabbath day. The rabbi has to show up, has to do his work on the Sabbath. We all agree that that work is meant to be done on the Sabbath. That work of bringing a child into the covenant, of bringing him toward the place of of wholeness in his relationship with God. And Jesus even makes the argument, but don't you see, it's because, well, Moses gave you the law, but remember, God gave hundreds of years before circumcision as the sign to the patriarchs, to Abraham. That law, if we're, if we're trying to figure out, well, how do, we, how do we apply both of these laws? Clearly, the sign of circumcision is meant to be applied on the Sabbath day. If you understand that, then why? Why would you argue about me healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Not dealing with one tiny part of one tiny boy, but healing a whole man on the Sabbath. That's the work God has called Jesus to. He is saying, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Jesus stands as the one who condemns them. He is ratcheting up the argument. Because while verse 9, the time had not yet come, by verse 10 it has. This is Jesus' last journey in the Gospel of John to Jerusalem. He will now spend the rest of his ministry in Judea, serving in that area. Yes, he'll be out in, in Bethany, but he will be here. It will be months now, just months, until his death, because the time has come. Jesus is here to do the will of his Father. Jesus stands to condemn sinners. But in that judgment, there is good news. Because the one who came to judge also comes to be judged. Not merely here, like verse 24, judged by the people of whether or not he's true. No, in a much more significant sense, Jesus comes to bear the judgment you and I deserve. He comes to go to the cross for you and I. That is who Jesus is. You can't keep Jesus as a good luck charm in your pocket and pull him out when you need him to answer a a serious prayer. You can't keep Jesus at bay by by just showing up here and going through the rituals of religion. No, the ones Jesus confronts here in this gospel are the most religious, the most devout, the most serious of people, but, but they're trusting themselves. Jesus is saying, I am the Son of God. I am the lawgiver. I come with authority, but I will be punished under the law you. I will go to the cross to bear your sin. And so when you ask that question, who is Jesus? Yes, he is the judge who calls you evil, but he is also the sacrifice. As John the Baptist reminds us, he is the Lamb of God, the sacrifice brought to the temple. He is the one whose blood will be shed. This is our hope. I mean, have you put your trust in Jesus? You can't leave him merely as a good man. You'd have to at least slide him into the category of being a liar. But he stands to claim the truth that he is the Lord. Will you believe in him? Now, you might say, well, yes, yes, pastor. I, like, I'm here every week. I've been here since I was born. I believe that already. I've joined in membership. I've got it. I've got it. We've got it figured out. But, but do you? Does the identity of Jesus change the way you live? Does the identity of Jesus transform you, how you think about yourself? Does the true claims about Jesus, does it make you different? Are you willing to let his identity make sense of your life? Now, as a, as a kid, you know, I loved watching the reruns of those shows, but, but I also have the, the memory, do you, do you remember when, when you would, sit down at the breakfast table and you'd pull out the, the carton of milk to pour over your cereal and there were faces of kids staring back at you. Right? The, the missing children pictures on those milk cartons. Which was sort of that reminder to me as a kid of don't talk to any strangers today. Which I was a kid who loved talking to strangers. So, I mean, like, just in general, I figured, well, they, I should probably talk to them. Um, so it was a good reminder to me of if I, if I don't listen, I'm, I'm going to end up on a milk carton. Well, actually, the, the, the surprising story is told of a little girl named Bonnie, Bonnie Lohman. She was abducted by a family member when she was a toddler, taken from her, her father. And she was, was then shuttled around the country. She, she, barely, she barely stayed in one place for any length of time. So even as a seven-year-old, when she goes to the grocery store with her abductor, this family member who, who, with whom she lives, she at seven years old can't read. But she knows that's the picture of me on the milk carton. So she pulls the milk carton off, takes it home. After the milk is gone, she cuts out the picture and keeps it. She can't read what it says, but she knows it's her. It's not until a neighbor she accidentally leaves this picture behind in a a box filled with her toys at a neighbor's house that the neighbor pulls it out and realizes (gasps) the little girl next door is missing? And the police come, and she's reunited with her father. But can you imagine? Can you imagine that as a, as a, as a child, being told that everything you believed about, about your life was a lie? You're not really who, who you've been told you are. It's not until you see that picture that you begin to understand the truth of, of how traumatic that would be, how everything in this little girl's life gets, gets thrown around, but now she's with a family member with her father who will love and protect her, not with her abductor who has lied to her. And yet, that's what this passage is for us. You, you and I see our faces there as those that are, that are guilty of sin. Those that have been living lives that, that are alive. Those that have been living, living according to, to the world's standards, not following after God. And yet, the good news is, when you and I look at that picture, when we are found by Christ, when He takes our place, Jesus is the one who is lost to sin. Your sin and mine, Jesus gives himself so that you and I can be found. When you and I come to Christ, then we find out who we are really meant to be. That's why we're calling this series, Jesus, My Identity. It's not enough for you to be able to answer that question, who is Jesus? What's Jesus' line of work? Why did he come? It's not enough for you to be able to answer that in the abstract. and In an academic sense, you have to be able to answer that personally. Is Jesus my identity? Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who gave His life for you, now calls you to live a life of joy in finding forgiveness in Him. Let me pray that God would apply this gospel to our hearts. Father in heaven, we we are comfortable listening to your word when it makes us feel comfortable. But Lord, there are times when your word confronts us with our sin, that we are evil, that we are not following the ways of the Lord. And so I pray that as your spirit has confronted us, we would find our hope and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. For those that wrestle with Jesus' identity, Lord, I pray that now you would give them spiritual eyes to see who Jesus is, to find their identity by coming to Christ and asking for forgiveness. That you would give them spiritual ears to hear the truth of the gospel as it's been proclaimed. That as they submit themselves to your authority, that they would see your truth. Lord, for those of us that have put our trust in Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that you would transform our hearts. That you would make us love, love you more. That we would follow after you. That we would find our identity in Jesus Christ.